To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. And welcome to the Discovery National Science Radio Show, where too much science is barely enough. If you're a person who's curious about the whys, the whats, and the hows of modern life, stick by the radio for the next half hour, as Discovery does the hard work for you and road tests the rationale behind the latest science stuff. I'm Tim Baines. On this edition, we will feature stress, personality, heart disease, and sponges. You spot the odd one out. And here's the news, but first up, here's one for the I wish I invented that file. Light switches that can be fitted anywhere in a building without wiring or a power supply have been created by a German company, Enotion. When the switch is pressed, piezoelectric crystals convert the mechanical energy into electricity. A transmitter then sends a radio signal to a receiver which activates a corresponding light. And I must add, that light is wired up to electricity. But after pressing the switch, an identifying code embedded in each radio transmission matches the switch to an individual light. This potentially allows thousands of switches to be used in the same building without any interference. Each signal can be received up to 300 metres away. The switches will be more expensive than conventional ones, but wiring a building from scratch would cost 80% less using this technology, says Enotion. The company is also working on wireless sensors that power themselves. Light switches will go on sale towards the end of 2002 in Germany. Last week, a Norwegian historian asked computer hackers to help recover a missing password that would unlock a valuable archive. The New Scientist website reports that the password has now been found. The National Centre for New Norwegian Language and Culture acquired more than 11,000 books related to Norwegian linguistics in year 2000, but an accompanying digital catalogue had been unusable since no one knew the password needed to unlock and, un uh, lock and unlock it. The man who created the database died a few years before and left no record of the password. Director of the Institute, Otto Grepstad, admitted he had no clue after already trying simple possible passwords such as family names and pets' names. To rebuild the catalogue from scratch would have taken one person at least a year of continuous work. So finding the password was very valuable to the Institute. Last week, Grefstad issued a plea for help over the web and on Norwegian radio for anyone skilled in the art of uh, password cracking. Grefstad said, We thought some hacker must be able to do it. Apparently, hundreds of emails later, the password has been found and the Centre for New Norwegian Language and Culture now has access to its digital catalogue of books, though they won't say whether the password was found by uh, crook or hook, by guesswork or hacking. I'll leave you to think which one would probably turn up with the result in less than 72 hours. Something taking a lot less time is an electroencephalogram, or EEG. 
U.S. scientists announced on Monday that this simple one-hour brain scan may be able to predict who will be helped by antidepressants and who will not. Weeks before depressed patients showed any visible benefits from taking antidepressants, their electrical brain waves started changing and showed up on the EEG, say the researchers led by Dr. Ian Cook at the University of California, Los Angeles. The method can save patients from wasting time taking drugs that are both expensive and have potential side effects. According to Dr. Cook, this is the first study to detect detect specific changes in brainwave activity that precede the clinical changes in a way that can usefully predict response. Up to 40% of depressed patients do not respond to the first medication they try. Since it takes several weeks for an effective treatment to produce clear improvement, doctors often wait 6 to 12 weeks to decide that a particular medication just isn't right for that patient and move on to another treatment. The researchers were looking at brainwaves, particularly at the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain right behind your forehead. It's an area involved in judgment, motivation, many of the things that make us human. The EEGs were done simply by pasting electrodes onto the patient's scalp with gel and measuring brain activity. The findings reported EEG changes. At 48 hours to one week after the patient started medication, though people didn't show clear clinical differences until about four weeks into the study. Recent studies have also shown that patients may respond to placebos in much the same way they respond to antidepressants, and further research suggests that cognitive therapy, uh, that is to talking to a psychiatrist, instead of taking pills, may work well may work well or better than drugs in treating depression. Different people may have different forms of depression that respond to different treatments and Dr. Cook is looking into the EEG of these treatments. being caught with that video store amnesia? You know what I mean, you walk into a video store, you know exactly what you want to get, and then the moment you walk in the door, it's gone, and you just get whatever. Gina Satori did something like this when she walked into the University of Sydney Library. She meant, up, meant to look up 101 tips on herding cats, but ended up flicking through science journals like Nature and the Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine. Last week, I was looking at a study on the effect of job type on death rates, which found that even years later, workers who had had low control over their working life had much higher mortality than those who had been in jobs where they had had high control. It didn't seem to matter how stressful the work was, just whether or not you could determine your own way of working. Well, that study was covered in Nature, but the original paper was published in the Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine. I thought this was too good a title to resist, so this story is really inspired mainly by my desire to have a bit of a sticky beak and see what kind of science gets published in a journal dedicated to psychosomatic medicine. The first thing I noticed is that it's obviously an extremely busy journal with quite a waiting list for publication. The paper I'm going to be telling you about was received way back in July 2000, sent off for revisions. The new version was received in October 2001 
And here it is, the June issue, and it's finally appearing in print. This kind of delay is not unusual in science, and it causes some angst to those of us who want to have a paper or two published before we submit our PhD theses this time next year, but haven't actually written anything yet. Still, while it may piss scientists off, if you have to sacrifice in the dark of the moon to achieve publication, well, all right, wait around a bit, it does at least mean your discipline is alive and kicking. Alchemy today may not have much of a waiting time, but it doesn't have much of a readership either. Here are some of the things you can read about in the May-June issue of the Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine. Relationship between all-cause mortality and cumulative working life cause psychosocial and physical exposures in the United States labour market from 1968 to 1992. That's what we reported on last week, and aren't you glad I just gave you the digest version? Loneliness and health, potential mechanisms. Telecommunications technology as an aid to family caregivers of persons with dementia. Here's a good one. Distinguishing between neurodegenerative disease and disease-free ageing. Correlating neuropsychological evaluations and neuropathological studies in centenarians. And finally, measuring subclinical disability in older Mexican-Americans. There's a bit of jargon there that's not really my field. I'd have to look up a lot of that stuff. But it seems like it's a blend of medicine, public health and psychology. The interesting thing about all those titles for me is that I had to have a bit of a think about what psychosomatic means. I've always taken it to mean physical symptoms with no organic cause, which is sort of how the journal defines it too, but without the slightly derogatory undertone of it's all in the mind that creeps in sometimes. As in, it's just psychosomatic. It's just in the mind. What most of the authors seem to be doing is trying to find out how life events affect health. And not just saying, if bad things happen to you, chances are you'll feel bad, but trying to actually find a mechanism to explain how seemingly unrelated symptoms can be caused by events and emotions. Which brings me to this one last title, A Path Model of Chronic Stress, the Met Metabolic Syndrome and Coronary Heart Disease. Peter Vitaliano and his colleagues from the University of Washington and Duke University have tried to show not only that chronic stress leads to heart disease, but how chronic stress leads to heart disease. They've come up with a model, quantifiable and testable by others, of how chronic stress Personal, personal vulnerabilities and personal and social resources predict whether or not a person will suffer psychological distress and poor health habits. These in turn predict the likelihood of having the metabolic syndrome of, among other things, obesity, high blood pressure, high cholesterol and high glucose and insulin levels, all of which mean you have a fair chance of developing coronary heart disease. The researchers looked at three groups of people, men over 60, women over 60 who were taking hormone replacement therapy, and postmenopausal women over 60 who were not taking HRT. Hormone replacement therapy is considered to give some protection against developing heart disease. Before menopause, women have less risk up than men. After menopause, the risk even evens out if women are not on HRT. One way they looked at chronic stress 
was to see if the person was the primary caregiver for someone, usually a spouse, suffering from some form of dementia. This is a good way of finding a chronically stressed population, as caring for someone you love who is ill and not getting better places you in a situation of high demand, there's lots you have to do, low control, you can't di dictate when you do it, and to use the nicely euphemistic term of the authors, it subjects you to psychological challenge. Comparing these people with others of the same age who weren't primary caregivers, the authors looked at a range of measures including resources such as education and income, social resources like belonging to some group, coping style and vulnerability which here meant how the person expresses and, and acts on their anger, their anger proneness and their general hostility. This was important because these measures also predict high blood pressure and other heart disease risks so you'd want to control for them. These initial factors might lead to other risk factors which were measured, such as poor health habits, exercise and diet, psychological distress, depression, feelings of being overloaded and sleep disturbances, and the metabolic syndrome I mentioned before. Blood pressure, cholesterol, insulin and body mass index were all measured. Finally, the participants' medical records were independently assessed to see if there were differences in the incidence of heart disease between the groups. So what did the researchers find? In all three of the chronically stressed, the caregiver groups, distress, metabolic syndrome and coronary heart disease occurred. But one didn't always predict the other. In male caregivers, there were strong links from stress to distress to metabolic syndrome to heart disease. Chronic stress is a good predictor of later heart disease in that group. In female caregivers not using HRT, the links were weaker, but over a longer time, distress and heart disease are related. However, for the women using hormone replacement therapy, the psychophysiological pathways found by the researchers in the other two groups didn't show up. Interestingly, these researchers found that it was distress rather than anger and hostility that had the strongest link with the symptoms predicting heart disease like high blood pressure, which is somewhat, something quite different to what's been found before. Well, anyway, I reckon this is quite a nifty little journal. Keep your ears open every couple of months for the latest from the world of psychosomatic medicine. That was Gina Satori reporting from between the pages of the latest rip-roaring issue of the Journal of Psychomatic Medi Psychosomatic Medicine. I just love that word.
Radio's very relaxed national science show, Discovery. Brought to you across Australia on the community radio satellite, ComradeSat. Still to come, sponges. They're good in the bath, they're good in the sea, but if you lend them five bucks, you'll never get it back. This is Michael Archer, director of the Australian Museum. Fascinated by everything in the world around me. Every day, my mind is blown out, my left and my right ear, and I'm having fun. And if you want to enjoy the world like I do, listen to Discovery. A lot of animals frequently get glossed over by biologists because they don't seem to be very interesting. One example is the humble sponge, and our resident bubblehead, Lachlan Watmore, will now take us on a guided tour of a sponge, both inside and outside, so you can decide just how boring they are. Imagine an animal that could reassemble itself after being nearly completely disintegrated. Imagine you could push this animal through a coarse mesh until it was a pile of cells on the other side and then sit back and watch it reconstruct itself close to its original form. Such animals exist. In fact, there is a whole phylum of animals that, in terms of their cellular processes, are nothing short of astonishing. The phylum is called periphera and the animals I'm referring to are sponges. Sponges. Sponges? Yes, sponges. Those innocuous, pretty aquatic creatures that a lot of folks mistake for plants. There are 9,000 species of sponge that have so far been described, and it is estimated that at least another 9,000 remain to be discovered. Compared to other animals, sponges have simpler anatomies and physiologies, but their cellular processes, in particular the ability of cells to differentiate from one form and or function to another, marks the phylum periphera as quite unique. There's that word phylum again. In case you're not familiar with it, phylum is a level of biological classification or taxonomy, one step below that of kingdom, which is the highest level of all. Therefore, phyla encompass large groups of animals. However, no taxonomic definition is ever loose. When I refer to the phylum periphera, I must have a strict definition of what a peripheron actually is, otherwise the whole taxonomic system is pointless. With all the millions of species of animal, plant, protist, fungus, and any other kingdoms I may have forgotten, if I said something like, oh yeah, sponges are sort of squishy and hang around on the sea floor, suck up their food, and then make little sponges, I would look like a silly twit. 
So what's the strict definition of a sponge? Sponges are metazoan or multicellular. Sponges are sessile, which means they hook onto the seabed and they stay there. They are unselected particle feeders, which means they sieve the water for organic material to ingest and are not very choosy about their diet. If you remember the last time you saw a sponge, as I'm sure you will, you might remember an aperture or series of apertures on its outer surface. These are called oscula. One is called an osculum. An osculum is where the water comes out after it has been sucked into the sponge through its outer surface, which is called the pinnicoderm. The pinnicoderm contains cells called porocytes, which contain small channels which conduct the water into the chambers bound by the inner surface of the sponge. Now, if you think the outside of a sponge looks boring, which it doesn't, I'm a scuba diver, so I should know, put your wetsuit and tank on, step inside a Disney movie, and shrink yourself down to about one micrometer. That's one millionth of a meter or one thousandth of a millimeter. We're now swimming down the porosidic ch channel into the interior of the sponge. The channel is also a tunnel through a layer of the sponge where most of the amazing cellular shenanigans of the animal occur. This layer is called the mesohyle, but we're not going there right now. First, let's look at the powerhouse of the sponge, the turbine that drives this current that grips us, pumping 27 litres a day and cycling the entire animal's seawater capacity in 7.6 seconds. There are three types of sponge according to the complexity of its water flow system. Ascanoid sponges are simple, with a single linear internal chamber and one osculum. Psychonoid sponges are more convoluted, and leuconoid sponges have complex internal chambers and many oscula. However, back to the porosidic channel. Sucking us into a round chamber are what appear to be whips. They are the beating flagella of the choanocytes, and this is where the current comes from. Choanocytes are found on the inner surface, or choanoderm, and they are sort of boxy and characterized by their long flagella, which is similar to the tail of a sperm cell. The choanocytes are arranged to form chambers with their flagella pointing inward to concentrate the force. As we bump into the membrane of a choanocyte, it suddenly envelops us, and our next mode of transport is available. We're now inside a membrane-bound vacuole that was formed from the choanocyte's outer membrane and we're moving towards the inner layer. Presently, the choanocyte deposits us inside the mesohyle and several different sponge structures and cell types present themselves to us. Firstly, the sponge's supporting structures, rather loosely called its skeleton. Support for the shape of the sponge comes from several sources. Firstly, there is a matrix of the protein collagen, which is supported by fibres of the protein spongin. The mesohyle also contains large spiky structures called spicules, which come in a variety of shapes and sizes according to species. Many are star-shaped or asterose, some are helical and exquisitely beautiful, others are complicated and interlocking. Spicules are good taxonomic indicators when classifying sponges, and I could easily talk about them all day. However, here in the mesohyle, it's all systems go. Many cells are busy secreting various substances like calcium carbonate or silica to make spicules, collagen to cover the surfaces and reinforce the structure, polysaccharides to bind with the collagen and many other compounds. The most amazing cell in the mesohyle is called an archaeocyte, which is able to change its shape and function or differentiate into any of the other cell types in the sponge. When a sponge is disintegrated or otherwise injured, it's the archaeocytes that do most of the work in getting the sponge to aggregate again. Through a complex series of biochemical interactions, sponge cells recognise each other and begin to form new structures, with the archaeocytes metamorphosing into whatever cells are needed to fill various, various gaps. 
sponge cell aggregation studies are frequently used in biomedical research because the ability of cells to recognize each other provides interesting clues as to how so-called higher animals uh, cells communicate. Sponges reproduce both sexually and asexually. There is a large variety of sexual strategies they use, and I'd like to refer listeners to the textbooks for description of these, because time is limited. I would, however, just like to give a brief description of one form of sexual re asexual reproduction, I should say, which I think is really cool. A genus of sponge called Arptos looks like a small hemisphere, and when environmental conditions are right, it extends a thin mat of itself forward over the substrate from its bottom edge. From this mat arises new sponges which bud up and attach to the bottom. Once they've attached, the mat recedes and the new buds are left some distance from the parent. Oh, there's something I forgot to mention. I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you see that archaeocyte swelling up to engulf us? Well, it appears that we are food. The archaeocyte is in digestion mode and you, all are, you and I will soon be swimming in digestive enzymes. Before we dissolve into our constituent atoms, I hope you've enjoyed this journey into this simple yet unique animal. Boring? Hardly. That was Lachlan Watmore putting the squeeze on sponges. And if you're a scuba diver and would like to see a sponge garden of Eden, Lachlan strongly recommends diving Halifax Point in Port Stephens, New South Wales. Go to any dive shop in Nelson Bay and they'll point you in the right direction. If you like sponges, you won't be disappointed. And that's all from us rocking out in this edition of Discovery. If you would like to contact us, you can try Carrier Pigeon again. Um, but we prefer email. And not just any old email. We like discovery at 2ser.com. That's discovery, all lowercase, at 2ser.com. Contributing to the program were Gina Satore, Lachlan Watmore and me. Discovery has been produced by Lachlan Watmore in the studios of 2SER Sydney with technical support from Gina Satore. Discovery is broadcast nationally via ComradeSat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Tim Baines. Join us for more science-flavoured goodness next week on Discovery.
valero que ya no quiere cantar la rumba buena será que ya no le gusta más los cuernos 